0: how does understand uh this concept itself and mind and how minding work um uh, slide it's kinda uh, operating
1: The question was about uh, understanding self and selflessness and the nature of mind and the example, and the role of discursive thinking or reflective thinking in that investigation. The example he used was uh, of a fly buzzing around and noticing the fly, noticing the sound and then the glands and noticing the sensation and then the tensing up. And it's keeping the tensing up, it feels like it's self which is tensing, it's me which is tensing. So how to understand selflessness in that, and whether thinking about it or analyzing it discursively is of some help. of investigation or close attention which is very helpful, uh, we'll be talking more about this later in the week, is to distinguish between the concepts we have about things and the experience itself. So for example, hear a sound and usually very quickly there is some image, some thought, some concept about what's making the sound, namely fly. And it's not that that shouldn't happen. It's just to distinguish the experience of the sound from the concept. The hearing is one thing, the image is another thing. But usually we glom the image of the concept onto the experience of sound and so they become uh, inseparable. And so we think we hear in the fly but we don't hear fly. The ear doesn't hear fly. The ear hears sound. The mind thinks fly. Right? So you just want to distinguish those two. The same thing when it lands, you know, and you feel the sensation. We, we only feel the vibration, the tickling sensation, the whatever it may be. There is no sensation called fly. And so we don't actually feel a fly. We feel a particular sensation. As I say, it's not that the concept is not going to come. It will come, and as somebody said yesterday, it's often helpful that it comes. But we don't want to confuse the two experiences. If you're able to follow the sequence of what happens, even when it's very quick, You'll notice that each one of the actual experiences is arising and passing quite quickly. There's a sound, and even within the sound, it's a sequence. It's not just one thing within the sound, it's a a sequence of vibrations. And then the thought of the image comes, and that comes just in the moment. That comes and it's gone. It's not permanent. It lands with a sensation, you just feel the momentariness of the sensation. The tensing in reaction to it is also not self and not I. There's something unpleasant, either in the sensation itself, or there's something unpleasant, and this would be interesting to notice, in the thought. Right. This is a flying so We don't like the thought or the concept, and maybe we're actually reacting to the concept and not to the sensation itself. But it's all this process, this law of conditionality. Because of this, this arises. Because of this, this arises. Because of some unpleasantness, either to the sensation or the concept, there's a contraction. The contraction is itself just another sensation, which can be noticed. Not I, not self. It's just the result of some conditioning. And so the more precisely you notice you follow this chain, and cause-effect, 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 begins to break through the illusion or the concept that there is someone behind it all. Reflecting about it generally um, is not so helpful, because that itself is just another arising object, thinking. Sometimes, you know, there's a there's a voice in the mind. I call it the Dharma Coach. You know, it's just it's kind of coaching us a little bit in terms of pointing us in a certain direction. That could be helpful, but that's different than a long discursive analysis. Yeah, well, if you do that, if you kind of have that notion, but in the sense of it helping you to actually look at the experience. That could be somewhat helpful. But if you're just lost in the conceptual analysis, divorced from the experience, then it's not very helpful. But this is is a a really profound question. It's It's what the practice is all about. Freeing ourselves from the prison of our concepts about things, so that we actually can start relating to the impermanent, selfless nature of experience uh, as it presents itself. But our minds have been very conditioned, you know. So it's, it's a process. Did you say
0: something about the, the of yeah.
1: <laughs> the question was about a skillful way to deal with pain. Uh, the first thing to um, check when is strong pain arising is whether the body is tensing in reaction to it or is relaxed with it. Yeah. And so if you notice that the body is tens- tensing with respect to the pain, here's where Dharma Coach would, you know, that voice would be helpful. Just reminding yourself, okay, relax. It's okay. Let me feel it. So we just get into that mode of receptivity, of acceptance. Uh, really relaxing into the sensation. When you have some degree of acceptance, it doesn't have to be total or complete, but if you have some degree of openness to it, then you can uh, play with different levels of uh, precision with respect to it. Sometimes you want to, or that's the way of beginning, Is be more global in your awareness of it. So you're just aware of a certain area of sensation and you're looking at it more globally and from a distance. And then uh, gradually you can bring the attention in closer to it. The first step in that would be to notice the actual sensation that you're calling pain. Is it burning? Is it tightness? Is it twisting? Is it stabbing? Is it whatever? Years ago, there was an article in Good Housekeeping Magazine listing 80 different kinds of painful feelings, (laughs) painful bodily sensations. So there's quite a a, uh, catalog. The more precise you can get with what sensation it actually is can free you from the concept of, my knee is killing me. That's a concept. That's an image. That's not an actual sensation. So first we start more globally, just aware of the whole area. Then we go in to try to recognize the specific sensation. And a further step of investigation would be to go to the pinpoint of maximum intensity within the area. And within that whole experience of burning, let's say, or twisting, or pressure, Just look very carefully and go to the point of maximum intensity within it, notice that, and then see what happens to that point of sensation, that pinpoint. And I think you'll notice that on that level you can experience quite easily Uh the momentariness, the momentary nature. That particular point of sensation, it either dissolves or shifts or moves, it does something, it's not static and then go to the next point of maximum intensity. So it's sort of like following the dots of intensity of sensation. What this does is break up the illusion of solidity. And usually with pain, that's our big problem with it. It's not even so much the intensity or the unpleasant, but this concept we have that there's some solid thing there, that's pain. When you get to the level of the momentariness of sensation which comprises it, it becomes much easier simply to be with it. Pay attention to or monitor the degree of acceptance, of softness, of relaxation you have with it. So if you start tensioning and tightening, back up from it. Become more global. Go back to sound, to the whole body. When you feel relaxed, go back into it in this progressive way. Working with pain is extremely helpful both in terms of understanding the true nature of the body, of understanding our conditioned reaction to unpleasant things, of beginning to decondition the response of fear, of panic, with respect to pain, and it's a very uh, useful object for the development of samadhi, of concentration. When the pain is there, and you can be relaxed in your attention to it, the mind is not wandering. and you know, that's a very strong object, and so you can really get very still with it. So just in summary, so I just want to make two announcements. The question was uh, the instructions about what to do in the metta practice when negative emotions or images arise. Generally, in concentration practices, um, as much as possible you want to just leave aside anything which takes you away from the main object of meditation. So if you're able, as you're doing the metta, and the will arises, anger arises, or other negative emotions, and you can just let it be in the background and keep on focusing uh, on the phrases, maybe coming back to yourself, or coming back to a person for whom it's easy to generate the meta feelings, that would be the first first strategy. Sometimes the negative emotions just may be too overwhelming. You know, they come up so strong. So in that case you would want to switch more to the mindfulness mode, become aware of them, recognize acceptance, label them and then as they begin to weaken, again to come back to the Mecca. But I'll only do that if it's really... if you can't simply let it be. You're in the background. The question was about what the four postures are, and the significant in practice. The four postures are sitting, standing, walking, and lying. Lying down. <laughs> 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 and it's simply a convenient way uh, or a convenient uh, reminder of when to stay mindful. So if you resolve, I'm going to stay mindful in each of the four postures, that's not a lot of different things to have to remember. It's just four things and yet it covers the whole day. So you can really take that on as a practice and also watch particularly the transitions from one posture to another, and here's where you could also work with the factor of intention. Now intentions arising all the time, and so we're not going to be aware or notice every one that arises, but we can notice the intention before predominant changes or movements of the body, as one way of honing in on intention. You might work through the day, particularly noticing those intentions before moving from one of the four pastures to another. As you're sitting before you stand, not the intention to stand. When you're standing before walking, not the intention to start walking. At the end of the walking, you know, before you turn, there'll be a moment of standing. So not the intention to go from walking, to standing, to sitting, to lying, like that. This is more than a mechanical exercise, because the experiential understanding or realization of the law of conditionality is the vehicle for understanding selflessness. When we don't see this clearly, we operate under the illusion, I'm sitting, I'm standing, I'm turning, I'm the one deciding. And so all along throughout the day, we're simply reinforcing that sense of I. If we begin to notice, not intellectually or theoretically, but actually how this mind-body is working throughout the day, we begin to see very clearly the body doesn't change position by itself. There's some mental phenomenon that happens which initiates the change. Because of this, this happens. And we have endless opportunities in the day to observe this. Again, as a reminder, intention is that of willing or volition or about to it's that moment in the mind that wills the action it takes quite a bit of attentiveness not so much to pinpoint it as a discrete object because you're not going to feel it particularly like that but you can be aware of how it's functioning You know, you might just sit here until you really become clear that there's an intention to stand. You can just see how long you sit. You know, until that intention becomes clear. But there's something in the mind which is going to initiate the standing up. What is that? And then you begin to see that it's just this selfless process. Maybe there's pain in the, in the body. You know, it's a physical sensation that gives rise to the desire to stand. The mental process, the desire to stand. Initiate, is the cause of the intention to actually stand. And then the standing. It's Questions: well, what is the role of, or the relationship of kalesas, or the defilements of the mind, to intention? Is it the tendency to, various tendencies to intend to act in certain ways? Uh-huh. The second question was about Mara. Uh-huh. Is that the voice of these intentions? The intention itself is just a neutral factor. It's an ethically neutral factor because all it... what it does is to organize all the factors to do a certain thing. So it's an organizing principle. Um, whether it's skillful or unskillful depends on the mental factors that happen to be associated with it in any particular moment. So sometimes intention is associated with greed. So that becomes the flavor. Sometimes with love, sometimes with compassion. The intention itself is neutral. But it's the associated factors which determine whether it's in the service of something wholesome or unwholesome. Mara generally, uh, the way it's generally used, it's like a personification of the forces of delusion or ignorance in the mind. so I like what you said in, in terms of it being the voice you know of uh, the unskillful mind state
0: right.
1: You've got to worry about what,
0: no, I <laughs> right?
1: I think the most useful uh, way of understanding and relating to it is to see it as the personification of these forces in our own minds. And sometimes it's helpful. I think I've mentioned this earlier. To to actually personify it, you know, the voice of the force of desire, the force of greed, or guilt, or fear, or you know, oh Mara, I see you. you know, because it helps to disidentify with a thing. You know, it helps to put it into a larger context uh, rather than contracting into this prison of self in it. You know, thinking this fear is mine, this greed is mine. It's just an impersonal force. It's also said that Mara is, in terms of the realms of existence, and this is a kind of a little slip from the Western religious cosmology, where the devil's lord of the underworld. Here, Mara is said to be the king of the highest heaven. Of the the highest heaven in the sense, sense sphere. And... Mara's role in this is simply to keep everybody in his domain, and so they don't get free of the world of the senses. So it's more seductive. You know, whether you believe in the cosmology or not, I think we can certainly relate to it in terms of our own mindset. was in the meta when the energy flags, sometimes she goes to Vipassana and just watches the breath for a while to uh, re-energize the practice. I think it could be helpful to do that if uh, you use the breath along with the metta phrases, you know, so you can really um, work with them together for a while, so you don't lose the thread or the momentum of the phrases. Something that can be helpful is to actually breathe through the heart center and feel as if the phrases and the image of the person is coming from the heart center. That can often be both energizing and connect us more with the feeling. Sometimes if we're keeping or if we're letting our attention rest where it often does in the head you know when that becomes the locus of our attention sometimes the words start getting very mechanical It's just words dissociated from anything what i found is if i consciously let my attention drop and just rest in the area of the heart center and sometimes support that by feeling the breath there, then the words start to come from here. And the image of the person starts to come from here. And it feels more connected and energized. if you feel pain in the area of the heart center when you focus your attention should you leave it there or shift I would see if you can uh, soften behind it you know, spend a little time relating to the pain there with the feeling of metta you know, so it's softening, it's opening the words are coming if it continues to tighten you know, or more painful, or you can soften at a particular time, then you might, then you might shift. But I would work with a little bit, and, and see if it's possible to relax into it and relax that whole area. Uh,
0: I think it's time for... Uh, to go into Just one announcement. Near the closure, you talked the other night, you made a statement that uh, the one and from hearing was on the screen, and hearing the one and hearing was on the third and on. I guess, from an absolute point of view, you could lay out and fly about the three standards of uh, hearing, perception, and welcome. Is it kind of a famous overlay? All through?
1: The question was about the teaching in one of the searches that I mentioned in the last talk, in the scene, just the scene, in the herd, just the herd, in the sense, just the sense, and so forth, but with regard to the other skandhas, like perception and feeling and all the different mental tendencies, where do they fit into that? I think implied in the teaching is that all the skandhas are present, because these are never separated. they, They can be distinguished, but you can't separate them out. The thrust of the teaching, in that particular teaching, is that in the experience of just seeing, which is the same as saying in the experience of the different skandhas functioning, There's no I, there's no self, they don't belong to anyone. And so to rest in the simplicity of just the bare experience, bare attention, without creating the concept of I or self, of belonging to me. question is about, uh, we've spoken a lot about desire and aversion. What about delusion? Uh, Thursday night. (laughs) (laughs) It's delusion night. (laughs) At least in part. It's it's a huge, huge uh, part of our lives we're in such delusion that we don't even realize that it's a huge part of our lives the Buddha talked about how ignorance is just at the root of this whole samsaric wheel You know, so it's understanding it and how it functions is just a key element in the path of liberation so, but I'm elaborate a bit more
2: Thoughts come slowly rather than not notice, rather than in the city, but walking, I thought we just allow them as background. I keep finding a desire to note having than just let them do. It's better to be them do or note them when we following mm.
1: The question was in the walking meditation, uh, as he's slowing down and becoming more aware, more precise, uh, feels like he wants to Bend the rules a little bit in terms of how to be with thoughts in the walking but generally the instruction has been to simply let them be in the background and stay with the movement as the, as the main object. But he's in a interest and inclination to note the thoughts as they come in the walking. Uh, that's fine. In fact, One of the things that I find so interesting in the practice, though, which is highlighted so much in the walking, somehow it becomes very clear in the walking how easily we get lost in created mind world. I mean, within one step, it's like we can inhabit any one of the realms of existence, depending on what particular thought world we get lost in. And it's so interesting and revealing in the walking because it's in such stark contrast to the simplicity of the experience of just taking a step. And so the contrast really highlights the degree to which we're living in these Sometimes I think of them as, like, cartoon bubbles, you know, just, just these little bubbles created by our thoughts when we're not aware of them, and when we're inhabiting them. So to become aware of that, and to really see through the transparent and empty nature of these thoughts, so that we don't inhabit them, they're just, they're like bubbles. Well, I think I think it's a skillful thing to do. The question was about compassion and the opening to pain or suffering, or to oneself, or to beings. What exactly is one opening to? It said that uh, the cause for compassion to arise is proximity to suffering. that when we allow ourselves to open to the suffering that's there, whether it's in ourselves, in other beings, when we can open to it and feel it and be with it, it's that openness to the pain of the suffering that allows for the natural response of compassion to arise. So it's almost like compassion is the consequence of the opening. This takes some practice because our conditioned tendency with respect to pain or suffering, is to close off. It's unpleasant, we don't like it. You know, and so we contract, we get isolated from it. It's easy to see or to explore our conditioned response to painful things in our relationship to pain in the body which that's quite tangible and quite immediate for us and just to look how are we with it are we really open feeling it just letting it be or in some way do we contract do we push it away do we have an agenda how we relate to pain in the body is a good indication of the condition tendency of how we relate to pain and suffering in the world painful situations in the world. We can see, we can see our habits of mind with regard to that right here. There's, I don't know whether this was mentioned in the hall, but uh, the way this uh, wonderful Sri Lankan monk taught metameditation meditation towards oneself. He came here about years ago and he was 93 then. And I think he's still alive. I haven't heard otherwise. But he's very, very sweet monk. And he taught, him he would go through the body. May my head be happy and healthy. May my neck be happy and healthy. Myself. Uh, it's just so sweet, you know, kind of opening with compassion, just opening to the sort of whatever pain or suffering there exists, you know, in the body, and then by extension, you know, to extend it, to relate that way to all other beings. Um, does that relate to your question at all? You know, I learned this trick from Muninja, my first teacher. People would ask him questions, and then he would just proceed to answer whatever he wanted. (laughs) And very often they weren't related to the question at all. It was a great teaching technique. (laughs) But if I missed it... was about wise reflection and the place of it, especially in relationship to seamless practice during the day. What kind of reflection do you feel is helpful? Okay, I think it would be interesting to uh, bring some discrimination to which reflections are actually wise reflections and which is just reflection. Because reflection in the mind, even if it is about the Dharma, or about our experience, doesn't necessarily make it wise reflection. (laughs) Uh, There can be. There can be. Much in this practice, There are many different ways of, uh, or techniques or methods of Dharma practice from different angles, and in some, reflection plays a big part. In this practice, there's less emphasis on that side, and more staying in the stream of direct experience, because of the understanding that insight really is intuitive. It's not reflective. It's not discursive. There are times, however, though, either you know, if there's very low energy, or you feel the mind is spacing out a lot, or for whatever reason you're not just in the flow. Sometimes stepping back and asking that question, well, what's going on here? You know, and you really reflect a bit. What are the different What are the different qualities in my mind now? Is there too much energy? Is it too much sloth. That kind of reflection is fine, particularly if you know notice that you're doing it, so that you're not simply lost in it. The reflection that you need to be a little careful about actually comes at a certain stage of practice, predominantly when we're really getting into it, when it seems to be going well, and the mind is full of faith, full of confidence, And then it begins to take a lot of delight in thinking about the practice. And it's very seductive because they're all Dharma thoughts. But in that time, we're not aware that we're thinking. So we're really as lost as when we're having other kinds of thoughts. And it weakens the awareness, the, the mindfulness. So those kinds of long reflective Dharma sequences you want to you want to really pay attention to. thinking, thinking, Dharma tape. Yeah. In, out, in, out. It's hard to believe, but Awareness of the breath or the body can open up much deeper domains of experience than thinking about things.
0: Okay, uh, just
1: one. any questions about your practice? About the difficulty of seeing angry thoughts as empty phenomena. Um, That is just passing thoughts. Even though with some other kinds of thoughts, uh, it seems easier to do that. I think it is more difficult with angry thoughts, because usually we're not aware of them in the very moment of their arising. Usually we're aware of them retroactively, that we're caught already in the thought and the emotion, and then we become aware, but we're already identified with them. So it becomes uh, somewhat more difficult difficult to see them as being transparent. Uh, one way you might practice in terms of unhooking from that identification is not so much initially on the thought level, because what's uh, energizing those thoughts is the energy of the emotion, of the feeling. That's what's, that's what's charging the thought if it was simply a thought going through the mind, these words going through the mind without the associated feeling, it probably wouldn't be much of a problem. What I think can be helpful is uh, opening up to the physical sensations associated with the emotion and in some way relaxing behind those physical sensations often the the charge of the emotion is expressed through a feeling in the body that's quite uh, tight you know, or contracted and then that fuels or or charges the the thought if you can recognize that the anger is there, drop down into the body okay, let me feel this on the sensation level to get to a place of acceptance of whatever those sensation feelings are. If there's really genuine acceptance, then those sensations are actually able, how to say, they wash through more easily. We're not, we're not getting caught or identified with them. From that place of acceptance of the sensation level, the thoughts I think will be much easier to disidentify identify with. So it's, it's really around here that you have to practice dropping in and accepting and feeling. That's where, the, that's where the contraction really is. Of course, what keeps us from doing that is on not uh, taking the meta view there's a nice uh, combined meaning here M-E-T-T-A and META uh, because the double t a actually allows us to take the single t a perspective you know if we have some loving kindness towards this feeling We're really being with these sensations of contraction with loving-kindness. That gives us the META perspective on the whole syndrome. We're not so caught in the story. And unless we have that larger perspective, we get lost in the story again and again and again, which feeds the contraction because we're identified, and it's like this knot. The question was: Would the same be true with pleasant experiences? I think, uh, when we're caught in them, it would be. You know, if, if you really feel like you're identified. Yeah. Yeah. I would. The body, and I think this is one of the reasons the Buddha gave such emphasis to mindfulness of the body. Although, you know, as we've talked about before, it's a huge, it's a huge uh, arena to learn about, but this is one, I think, very important aspect of it, because the different feelings that we have, or different uh, mind states that arise, find expression in the body, and the body is a more tangible field for us to be aware of, and for us to notice the degree of reaction or the degree of acceptance, so it's very useful. I mean, to try to look at the emotion as a mental phenomena, at first directly, is very subtle. I mean, how, do, you know, where do you find it? And yet we can actually find it as it's expressed through the bodily feelings. And really see quite clearly the degree to which we're soft and accepting, or the degree to which we're tight and contracted, but not so subtle. Whether it's on the unpleasant side, or the pleasant side. Just one little thing to notice, as you go through this process, and you find yourself kind of dropping back in awareness and in acceptance just notice that moment when it's, you know, when we can really feel like we're being let out of the grip of whatever it is, whether it's the unpleasant feeling or pleasant feeling. You know, that certain moment of awareness and acceptance. I mean, we, literally, we can, we can breathe again. You know, and that's the moment of the disidentification. Being identified with something is being in the grip of it. It
0: seems that um, uh, drafting and emerging forms around in the sense of dark iron I don't want And um, reflecting on the system of the fact that belief in self is on the first things to go. And what I don't understand is how. Uh, Desire and aversion of 4th and So, So a long time after a physical self. So what's compelling desire and aversion? The
1: mm-hmm. question was about how it seems like desire and aversion really revolve around the sense of self. You know, I want this, I don't want that. And yet, the sense of self is supposed to be eliminated at the very first stage of enlightenment, and yet desire and aversion are not uprooted, so it said, until quite a bit later on. Even more interestingly, the kalesha of conceit isn't eliminated until the very end, until you know, full enlightenment. Uh, there are a few, a few ways of looking at this. One is not so much that uh, the feeling of self creates the desire and aversion, but rather the desire and aversion creates the sense of self. You know, there's a the sense of self when desire is there unnoticed. There's a sense of self when aversion is there unnoticed. Um, And the reason for this, or the the way of understanding it, is that actually we don't have to get rid of the sense of self since it's not there in the first place, or get rid of the self. It's the illusion of it that we have to see through. And that illusion happens through the identification with those tendencies. Somebody once asked, Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, what is it or who is it that that is reborn? And he had a wonderful answer. He said, neurosis. (laughs) (laughs) It's neurosis that's reborn. (laughs) And as usual, he kind of hit on something, you know, very to the point. In that really what's going on are simply habits of mind. And so even when we understand that these habits are not self, the habit of desire, the habit of aversion, the habit of conceit. Now even when we see through the self of it, the habit is very strong, and so these forces arise. But it's said that having seen through the concept of self seeing that it is just a concept, and we'll really have you know, a profound glimpse of selflessness, that is like cutting the root of the tree of samsara. And even though the leaves and the branches you know, may still be uh, flowering, that which gives them nourishment you know, has been cut. And so there's this inevitable process of the Kalesha's weakening and being uprooted. So that's the the key. And so it's in that sense that as the defilements or the Kalesha's arise in the mind, there's no need to so much get in a struggle with them, but rather to see through them. So that we don't get identified with them. We're not creating the sense of self in them. We're seeing them as old habits. And if we can be with them in that way, they come and they go, and they come and they go. And each time they're seen in that way, they're weaker and weaker and weaker. Uh, Back to the first question,
0: like when the emotion releases, we can breathe again. It seems like most of the emotions constrict this or and affect the breathing. Uh, We know that clear seeing emotions release. What about just the breathing itself? Suppose you have a a contraction and that's clear seeing. And your breathing is restricted. somehow you could pull breathing, would that uh, seem to work back in the other
1: way? Mm. The question uh, was about actually using the breath to help open and release the identification with different uh, emotions or mind-states. Um, I think it could help um, as a vehicle for being more mindful, not so much with an agenda of I'm doing this in order for something to happen. Right. If, if you're just sitting, if you really feel contracted and and tight, and you take a few deep breaths as a way of really getting present in the body, you know that's fine. But if you're doing it with the same, I'm doing it in order for this to go away. So already there's desire and aversion and so when so it's practicing kalesa. So it's interesting, you know, because in the name of mindfulness we don't want to be practicing desire. And I think I mentioned to you earlier on in the retreat uh, when I was sort of experiencing things in my body and Everything was quite open, but I felt this one uh, knot. You know, and I went in and reported to Pandita that I felt this block here. And immediately he jumped on me <laughs> even interpreting it as a block. Because already, block. In the very language that's used, there's an agenda. If there's a block, I have to get rid of it. Right? And so immediately there's a sense of self. This desire wanting to get rid of a diversion to it, all in that very simple way of conceptualizing. Really there was just a sensation there was, was pressure or hardness or whatever it was. And simply to be with that and let what happens happen. So let what happens happen. It's much simpler, that way. You, know, <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of just relax into whatever's arising with awareness. Of course, that's the case. So we don't get caught up or identified with the patterns of neurosis, you know, which are really the patterns of self. So enjoy this beautiful day.